Good morning. I am uh, blessed to be able to share with you from God's Word this morning. Um, when John asked me to preach on this Sunday, I said, you're going to give me the chapter with all the names I can't pronounce, aren't you? And he said, no. And I looked and, no, it was chapter 7. So instead, <laughs> I'm going to let him do that one. And we're going to do a recap, kind of. You know how sometimes when you watch a Netflix show and you get to episode five or six and you don't remember what happened in the first few episodes? And it says previously on. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Aren't you so grateful for, for those recaps? Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of recap and we're going to look at three specific areas uh, of Nehemiah's life that I have, that have been personally convicting to me in areas that I want to grow um, and I'm hoping that they will be for you as well. Um, we can always grow, we can always mature more in Christ, and these are three areas I want to focus on as we look at the first six chapters of Nehemiah. So we're going to look at where Nehemiah finds his strength, where Nehemiah puts his faith, and where Nehemiah secures his identity. Where Nehemiah finds his strength. We're going to look at Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 4. Most of the scripture I have today will be up on the screen, but if you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, we'll be going back and forth to different passages. So, so Nehemiah chapter 1 says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah gets a report back that the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem are, everything is broken. And he hears about this, and it causes him great sorrow. Why? Because the people of Israel are, are being mocked. And more importantly than that, God is being mocked because the walls and the gates of Jerusalem are broken down. It is susceptible to attack, but more than that, the people, the enemies of Israel are saying, look at their God. Where is he now? This great God who has saved them so many times, where is he now? He's gone. And Nehemiah knows this is not true. And so it causes him great sorrow. For Nehemiah, the most important thing is the glory of God. And he sees it being tarnished in the eyes of the enemies of God's people. And so he sits down, he weeps, and he mourns for days but where does Nehemiah find his strength? I continued fasting and praying before the God in heaven. Nehemiah finds his strength in the Lord, which is an obvious answer, but it is easy to forget that sometimes when we are up against opposition, isn't it? In verse 11, he says, O Lord, please don't go blank. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
Nehemiah sees the task before him, which is to go to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls and the gates, work with a people who are broken spiritually and hopeless, asking a king for permission who hates his own people, and to go there and to rebuild walls in a set time frame with opposition that is not only external, but internal. This is an impossible task, and Nehemiah knows this. Because Nehemiah knows this, he goes to the Lord. Because Nehemiah has realized and knows a very important truth, that when we are weak, then we are strong. This comes, this is a truth that is found all over the Bible, and Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians Verses, verse, uh, chapter 12. This is a familiar passage to all of us, I'm sure, but we'll read it anyways. Paul says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Three times Paul asks the Lord Jesus, to take away from him this thorn in his flesh, his weakness. And what is Jesus' response? No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Three times, three no's, Jesus pointing to, reminding Paul that his weakness is his greatest strength because his strength is found in him, in Christ. Nehemiah also could say this very same thing for the sake of Christ and I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to... So this is a uh, a paradox. When I am weak, then I am strong. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. I love that definition of paradox. And the Bible, in case you don't know, is full of paradoxes. Jesus said, if anyone wants to save his life, what does he have to do? He has to lose his life. If anybody wants to be great, what does he have to be? A servant of all. If you want to be strong, what do you have to be? It seems, doesn't make sense, does it? It seems contradictory. But God shows us that it is actually true that when we are weak, then we are strong. I want to go look at this kind of a different way. I want to use an illustration. Um, does anybody know, and if, and if you know this and you shout it out, there's no shame here, okay? What is the first step in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous? We admitted we were powerless over our addiction to alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. That is the first step 
of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill W. is the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the big book, which is kind of the AA's Bible, they, uh, the, the first chapter is his story, is his testimony of how he found freedom from alcohol addiction. And I want to read an excerpt from that because I think what he says just hits on this so perfectly. I read this a few years ago, and this really stuck out to me. So basically, in case you don't know, or if you've not read it, uh, he, uh, he talks about how he tried all these different ways to get free from alcohol addiction. He tried self-knowledge. He read books. He, he went to rehab. He sought doctors. Everything he did failed, and he kept falling back into alcohol addiction. Then one day, a friend of his, a former drinking buddy of his, uh, asked if he could talk to him. So his friend shows up to his house, and this is where we start here. But my friend sat before me, and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. This man was sober for the first time in his life. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. I've not had a drink since. Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of light who presides over us all. Now, I don't know if, I, I don't know if Bill W. was a Christian or not. Um, I do know that AA is, following the 12 steps, is extremely effective in fighting against addiction. And I think the reason is because it's admitting we're powerless is not a Bill W. AA idea. That's a Bible idea, right? It's effective because it comes from Scripture. <clears throat> admitting that we're powerless, admitting that we need help, admitting that we're wrong. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? Simple, but not easy. Why is it so hard for us to admit that we need help, to admit that we're wrong, to admit that we're powerless? You know, a couple years ago, I heard a, a sermon, a pastor was talking about this, and he was saying, admitting you're wrong, this is, this is really difficult for men. Men always want to be right. They always want to, you know, asking directions. They don't want to ask directions. <clears throat> and all I could think of is, I don't think this is just a, a men problem. I think this is like a human problem, right? Like everybody has a problem with this. And why is that? 
so for that, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now, this is not on the screen, but I want to look together at the first temptation. What is the first temptation? <clears throat> We're starting at verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you may not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, listen very carefully, you will not surely die. That was true. Kind of. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And what? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the first temptation? Well, we can look at this and say, well, it's the serpent's trying to get God, get Eve and Adam to doubt God's word. And that may be a strategy of his, but that's not the temptation. The temptation is you will be like God. The heart of every temptation that you and I face, the heart of every struggle we fight against, every sin we fight against, is this thought that, we, that the enemy's goal is for us to take God out of the center of our lives and to put me in the center. The, the goal of every temptation you and I face is this. For me, it's for me to take Christ off the throne of my heart and to put Ben on the throne. That, is, that was the first temptation, and they gave in to that. They wanted to be like God. God deserves all praise and honor and glory, right? He doesn't have to admit he's wrong. He never has to say, I'm powerless. So why should I? We want to be like God. This is the constant battle and struggle for who's in charge of your life. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have said, Jesus, you're the boss. You make the calls. But we fight in our flesh always against the flesh wanting to say, "Mm, I'm going to take control on this one. How about I take care of this one? That's why it's so difficult for us to admit that we need help, that we're powerless because of that battle that we're constantly, constantly striving against. Let's look at a couple sins. Anger. What is at the heart of anger? It's not yelling at somebody. It's not punching somebody. It's not, you know, having road rage. Those are all byproducts of anger, but that's not at the heart of anger. What is at the heart of anger? You inconvenienced me. You did something I don't like. You embarrassed me. I'm so great. How could you do that to me? That is at the heart of anger. Look at jealousy. That person got the uh, promotion that I deserved. That person has something I want. Look at lust. I'm going to use this person as an object to get what I want. Every sin we face, doesn't matter what it is, it comes down to this. Who's in control of your heart? Who's the boss of your life? Nehemiah understood this. And in Nehemiah 4, 
verse 10 through 14, we see this. We see that the people are hopeless. That they are without strength. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much trouble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember who? The Lord. He doesn't say, remember me. Look at me. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah knew that on his own he was powerless, that he could not complete the task that God had given him. So what does he do? He reminds the people of the Lord how great, how mighty he is. Today, if you are struggling and you are feeling powerless over sin, grief, despair, hopelessness, if you just say, Lord, I am weak, he will give you strength. You have Holy Spirit power. And the Holy Spirit against the flesh is undefeated. So the first application, where do I find my strength? What are you fighting against today, right now? This idea of being weak and admitting that we're powerless, this is the begin- that is the beginning of becoming a Christian. When we hear the gospel, and even this morning, if you're out there this morning and you've not fully trusted the Lord, I'm telling you right now, the gospel is that Jesus loves you and he died and he rose again for you, for your sin. And if you just trust him, if you say, Lord, I am powerless against sin. I am powerless against hopelessness and grief, despair. I'm, I'm powerless. I need you. I need your power. He will send the Holy Spirit. He will give you his Holy Spirit. And you will have power from him. And for us who are believers, this, this is an area I struggle with. All these areas <laughs> that we're going to be talking about, I struggle with. But I, I don't want to be powerless, right? I don't want to be, I don't want to have to admit that I'm a sinner. That's, that's hard. That's embarrassing. But it's the only way to find freedom. If you're fighting against a sin this morning and you're failing and you're failing and you're failing, rejoice. <laughs> you are weak and that's Okay. Cry out to the Lord and he will give you strength. Secondly, that should say two, not one, sorry. Where Nehemiah puts his faith. So Nehemiah 2, verse 17 through 20. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. This is Nehemiah speaking, by the way. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. 
So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. In the midst of opposition, where does Nehemiah put his faith? In God. He puts his faith in God. But I want us to notice something very particular is Nehemiah, when he puts his faith in God, it's not just lip service. What does it propel him to do? It propels him into action. He believed that God had called him to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the gates, to strengthen the people there, to point them to God, and to stand up against opposition. He believed this. So what did he do? He went to Jerusalem. He rebuilt the walls and the gates. He strengthened the people. His faith propelled him into action. Nehemiah put his faith into action. I want to look at James chapter 2. And I do not have this on the scripture there, so let us look together. James chapter 2. This is starting at verse 14. But what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. But do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now this may seem like a contradiction to Galatians chapter 2 and I'm just going to turn there real quick and read this. Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We believe that, right? We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is why FBC exists. That is why the church exists. That is a core tenet of Christianity. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? So what is James talking about? What is James saying? James is saying, and I believe that Luther put this the best way, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. James and Paul are both talking about saving 
faith. They're both talking about saving faith, but what they're talking about is the difference between saying, I'm going to do these good works to earn righteousness before God, versus I have been given righteousness through Christ. I, I am trusting in his righteousness that has been applied to my account. Therefore, that will propel me to good works. You see the difference? We do good works not compulsory, not because we want to earn favor from God, not because we want to do these good works so that God will look more kindly upon us, but because God has looked kindly upon us. We have earned favor, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did for us on the cross. His righteousness, not ours. His good works, not ours. When we put our faith into action, we are showing the fruits of our faith. And that's what James is talking about, the fruit of our faith. Nehemiah believed God, and he went and he did the work of God. It propelled him to action. It propelled fruit from his life. So we see that saving faith shows itself in good works. If I say I believe that this stool here will support me if I sit down on it, and you say, well, go ahead and sit down on it. And I say, no, I'm good. <laughs> Do I really believe that that stool is going to hold me? I'm not going to test it because that would be embarrassing if it did actually break. <clears throat> Do I actually believe that this stool will hold me? No, I don't. That's called lip service. And that's what James is warning us against, lip service. Look in uh, James chapter 2 again. What does it say in verse 16? And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? You see someone who's struggling with hunger and you say, I'll pray for you. But that's all you do. That's not saving faith in Christ. That's faith in myself. That's doing something I want to do. I don't want to be inconvenienced by that. Saving faith shows itself through, it work, through, our, through good works. We don't want to just give God lip service. We don't want to just say God, to God, yes, I'll do that, and then we don't do that. That's not faith. That's not coming from a heart of faith, right? That's coming from a heart of selfishness. And that's what James is warning us against. You know, I have a tremendous ability I'm not proud about this, but I have a tremendous ability of finding ways, different creative ways to say no to God. I can do some really great mental gymnastics to come up with excuses to saying no to God when he asks me to do something. I admit that as an area in which I am highly convicted. So this morning, I want us to ask ourselves, where do I put my faith? Where do we put our faith when, when opposition comes, when there are trials and temptations? Where do we turn? But more than that, I think we need to ask ourselves, what is the fruit of my faith? Is my life changed? Am I different because of what Jesus has done for me? You know, and this is going back to admitting we're weak, when 
someone becomes a Christian, when you become a Christian, and the Holy Spirit begins working on your heart, he begins to change your heart. A pastor friend of mine used to always say, Jesus changes your want-tos. He changes your want-tos. Before Christ, we didn't want to read the Bible, and now we do. I, I, I love that this dichotomy. The things that were once sweet become bitter to our tastes, and the things that were once bitter become sweet. Our hearts begin to change. What is the fruit of our faith? And lastly, we're going to look at where Nehemiah secures his identity, where he secures his identity So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 6. So this is the chapter that Kiefer just preached on last week. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, I still have to do these names that I can't pronounce. Son of Mahatabal, I I don't know, son of M, who is confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. We see here that these people uh, wanted Nehemiah to fail. And so they sent these prophets or fake prophets to to lie to Nehemiah, to get him to stop his work, uh, even more to kill him. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Nehemiah's life was defined by God's truth, not by what other people were saying about him. Nehemiah's life was defined by God's truth. This is all over the book of Nehemiah. Opposition comes to Nehemiah, lying, whatever it is, accusing him. And what does Nehemiah do every time he points to God. He points to God's truth about what, and he's letting that define who he is. You know, identity, the word identity is such a hot topic issue or word today, I guess. We, uh, you know, identify as this, identify as that. But identity, being part of something, is, is a very strong human desire that there's a reason why it's such a hot topic because people want to be part of something. Don't you want to be part of something? We, we all do. That, that's a human desire. We want to define our lives by something or someone. We want to identify ourselves with something or someone. You know, some of us, we define our lives by what we do. I'm a mother. I'm a student. I'm an athlete. That's where we find our identity we, we define ourselves sometimes by what people say about us. We hear somebody said something about us, so we attempt to change our lives to fit in. These are all ways that we define and identify our lives. Now, the, the problem with that is that when we're, when we're defining our lives outside of God's truth and what God says about us, the, the problem and what, really, what it really comes down to is that we're, let's say... You, let's say you're a mother, and that's kind of your, that, that's your purpose. That's why what you get up in the morning to do, that's, that's what defines you as a person, is being a mother. And let's say one day you fail as a mother. 
Well, what does that start saying about, what do you start internalizing? Well, I'm a failure. I'm no good. And we can do this about anything. We can do this about anything. When we, when we choose to define our lives by something outside of God, and we don't live up to that standard, what does that bring? Shame. Bring shame. And it, and it makes us want to put on a mask to be fake and phony. That's what, that, that's what that brings. But when we define our lives by what God says about us, I'm forgiven. I'm beloved. I'm his child. Then when we fail, and we do fail, we don't live up to that lofty standard that we've set for ourselves. When we fall short, we have an advocate for us in Jesus Christ. When we define our lives by his truth, then shame goes away. I, I, I want to talk about Peter for a second. Peter is my all-time favorite person in the Bible. I, I can relate so much to Peter. How many of you guys have watched The Chosen? I just love Peter and The Chosen. I just, if I were to write, that's how I would write Peter, exactly how he is. He's brash. He talks first. The first time we see Peter and The Chosen, what is he doing? He's fighting somebody. He's trying to punch somebody. I, mean, I just love it. I mean, that's exactly what I, I envision Peter. Um, he's such a great character, and he's such a great uh, person for me to relate to. In uh, the night Jesus is going to be betrayed, he tells, the, he tells his disciples, I'm going to be handed over to the Sanhedrin, and they're going to crucify me. What does Peter say? I'll go with you. Where? To the very end. I'm sure he meant it at the time. I'm sure he meant that. And Jesus says to him, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny that you even know me three times. So later that night, what happens? Peter denies that he knows Jesus three times. He hears the rooster crow. And in the book of Luke, it says at that moment, Jesus looked at him. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I can't even talk about this without getting emotional. I mean, can you imagine the kind of failure he must have felt like? He was defining himself by this great soldier for Jesus. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to... And what happened when he failed? He went out and he wept bitterly. I can't imagine the shame he felt in that moment. But good news for Peter the end of John, what do we see? Jesus restores Peter. He asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times. He restores Peter. And just a few chapters later in Acts, what do we see Peter doing? Giving the first gospel message and 2,000 people come to Christ. And he is a leader in the first church. He is a leader in that beginning church. People look up to him. It was even Peter who said, we need to be sharing the gospel with Gentiles. I've gotten a vision from the Lord. The Lord spoke to me, and we need to be sharing. This, is, this message isn't just for the people of Israel. This is messages for everybody, Gentiles included. And Peter shared that message. But what do we see in Galatians chapter 2? Let's, turn, let's everyone turn there. Peter once again forgets who he is. He forgets his identity. Galatians chapter 2. This is Paul speaking. 
in verse 11. But when Cephas, Cephas is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with what? The truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I... I relate so well with Peter because it doesn't seem like he learns. (laughs) Sometimes it just doesn't seem like I learn. Peter once again found himself defining his life by what other people said about him. He was afraid. And what what did that cause? It caused fear and shame when when, when those people who were saying, well, you have to follow the traditions of, of being a Jew plus the gospel. And so he was pulling away from the Gentiles and eating with them. And Paul calls him out on it. And he says, what? But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Peter was not living in step with the truth of the gospel. He was forgetting who he was. He was forgetting his true identity. We often do this, right? We often give way to fear and anxiety because we have forgotten who we are in Christ. So this last application, where do I find my identity? Let's, let's look at our lives. Where are we finding our identity? Are we, finding, are we defining our lives by what others say about us? Are we defining our lives by what we do? Or are we defining our lives by what God says about us, his truth? And the only way you can know that is if you read this. This has right here who you are. This has the truth of who you are. You are a child of God. He loves you so much that he died for you. And that is the truth that we can live by. So where Nehemiah finds his strength, he finds his strength in the Lord. Where Nehemiah puts his faith, he puts his faith in the Lord. And where Nehemiah secures his identity, his identity is secured in God's truth. Now, if you're like me, and you're looking at these three points, and you're just seeing nothing but failure... (laughs) I have good news for you. Rejoice, because God's mercies are new every day. His mercies are new every day. And today is a new day where you can find your strength, your faith, and secure your identity in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us. God, we thank you that you have given us everything we need for this life and godliness through Jesus Christ and that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your strength. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and that we can put our faith in you knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, we thank you that Our identity is secured in what you say about us, not in what other people say about us, not in what we do, but in the truth of your gospel is where we define our lives. Lord, help us. We need your help to 
to do these things. We need our, your help to find our strength in you. Lord, we admit that we are powerless without you. We need you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.